Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. John Robsky, Luke Johnson, and Bill McGrath, along with host Alyssa Nave Worth, tackle the challenges Nevada faces regarding public land issues in the post Harry Reid era. They discuss the specific impacts for a state built on public lands and home to Las Vegas, the only major metropolitan city in the country surrounded by BLM land, where models of successful land disposal and issues of transferred land are distinct and unprecedented. They also dive into the issue of mineral rights trespasses and the unpredictability this issue invites for developers, what they attribute this issue to, workable solutions, and what to expect going forward. Thank you so much for um, coming and joining us for this conversation. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alyssa Naveworth. Uh, I'm an attorney at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek in Nevada, and I'm a native Nevadan. So I'm excited about this p- panel in particular. With me are three of my colleagues. They're based actually out of D.C., but I will tell you their hearts are in Western um, because they are Western also, and so that's partially why we bond so well. At Brownstein in D.C., we have a number of subspecialized practices. The first and the predominant practice in D.C. is the Energy Environment Resource Strategies Group, which is co-chaired by Luke and John, who I'll introduce in a second. All these guys have extensive experience in public land issues, particularly with the BLM. They've been working specifically on these issues in D.C. for nearly 20 years. And they specialize in delivering results for clients by applying an interdisciplinary approach to resolving complex issues, primarily through their experience in working with executive branch agencies, including the Department of Interior and other relevant key offices in Congress. So to give you an explanation how the way I always describe them is, you know, at Brownstein, we pride ourselves in our professionals in D.C., but in D.C., there is one elite group. I call them the Navy SEALs of Brownstein, and that's the EARS team. A brief uh, introduction of these guys, Luke Johnson, he was the former deputy director of the BLM. He's the former chief of staff of the director of the BLM and the senior policy advisor to the senator from Utah, as a, and it was a professional on the staff natural House Natural Resources Committee. John Robsky uh, was the former deputy director of the Minerals Management Services at the Department of Interior and the former deputy, deputy director of the Secretary's Office of Congressional and Legislative Affairs. He was also the legislative director and senior staff member for House members on House Natural Resources. And next to him is Bill McGrath, who is the former staff director for the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on Interior and the Environment. And he also was the former senior counsel for the Safari Club in handling Endangered Species Act litigation. Each of them bring a unique perspective on issues involving the Department of Interior because they come from different agencies, and that's the interdisciplinary approach that they provide to uh, our clients and those that they advise. The reason why we're here today, when Paul came to me and said, we would like Brownstein to to think about a panel that is relevant to Nevada, I had just been here in Washington, D.C., meeting with uh, these guys on another client issue, and we're going to talk about that. It's about mineral rights trespasses. We talked about it in front of your government affairs committee not that long ago. And part of that conversation is how do we solve that problem? Both Luke and John and Bill, they all said to me, they said, look, Nevada is going to face this challenge and many more challenges going forward because for so long we were we received favorable treatment, frankly, under the leadership of Senator Harry Reid. And I don't think that those in Nevada and the development community and the business community fully grasp or understand, this is the viewpoint they have, about how much things were going to change in a post-read world. And so that's really what we're here to talk about today, which is what does it, what does it mean to be a state that's unique in the nation where we are literally built on public lands, especially in southern Nevada, 
in a, in a world where we then need to go to our landlord in Washington, D.C. every single time that we want to continue to grow. One of the, the first issues um, we've seen some, some of the changes that materialize in relation to the Nevada model is, you know, in 1998, we passed the Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act, um, and we've passed a number of critical, successful public land bills, um, more, I would say, than compared to our border states. These bills have generally coupled conservation designations, such as wilderness and national conservation areas, with new lands available for disposal and other provisions that facilitate new growth in and around Clark County. Can you describe to us, to start off our conversation, um, how things might be different now and what are the potential implications that could we have in Nevada as we move forward? Sure, and, and I'll go ahead and uh, lead off on this. One of the things that uh, I think really needs to be said is, is um, uh, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you certainly have to admire Senator Reid's legislative acumen in terms of the things that he was able to accomplish for Nevada relative to public lands issues. And certainly if you're from a neighboring state and you observed and, and uh, watched some of that, there was certain, uh, a, a certain degree of envy for the ability to resolve a lot of issues that were particularly vexing for neighboring states that seem to be solved relatively easily because of uh, that that capability. And um, so there was a long list of that uh, Alyssa uh, mentioned and referenced of public lands bills that were passed successfully. Uh, they're also within Senator Reid's ability because of his influence in uh, leadership. There were a whole host of issues within BLM that got resolved much easier um, in uh, Nevada that were, were far more complicated or, or difficult elsewhere. And so there's that's one issue that certainly is different. I think uh, Congress is not only uh, um, changed by virtue of Senator Reid's retirement, but also in terms of certainly there is nothing that gets through Congress that is, is easy these days. And um, uh, th that's, that's probably a, a more significant and more of an uphill battle to resolve some of those issues uh, than it used to be. Uh, one of the other things just in reference as well, too, that is different is uh, each of those, and particularly in southern Nevada, um, the model of successful land disposal is one that to some extent is in, uh, is in conflict with, with uh, for example, Secretary Zinke. One of the uh, touch points of one of the reasons he w was, uh, was nominated as, as uh, secretary was a, a difference of opinion about large-scale land disposal in the West. And, of course, uh, Nevada has a, a strong argument of why some of what they're doing is, is different and is distinct from that. But I don't think that issue has fully played its way out in terms of the degree to which um, – you know, the, the, the funding mechanism for some of the Nevada public lands uh, legislation in the past uh, potentially could be in conflict with uh, how Secretary Zinke might articulate his vision of what is or is not acceptable uh, land disposal. And so that certainly will, will need to play out as well. Um, I think my colleagues can, can, can add to this as well too, but I think uh, in Congress as well there's um, – the, the degree to which Senator Reid was able to find those legislative vehicles of perhaps, uh, you know, when at the last minute when a deal is getting uh, put together to be able to kind of airdrop in a, a provision, uh, a legislative provision uh, in public lands as a public lands matter is not something that was available 
through regular order, and 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 it makes it more difficult for uh, for them um, today. So those are just a few of those areas that I think are are different. Certainly, can turn to my colleagues for anything that they have to add on that front, but. Um, but I think that uh, the way in which some of that's going to play out certainly means that um, some of these issues will require a, um, probably either a, a longer period of time or uh, more complex challenges. Um, in fact, probably the last thing that I would note as well, too, is because of the long record of success of Nevada public lands issues, when you bring a bunch of stakeholders together, there's a supposition on behalf of those stakeholders that at the end of the day, this is going to happen. This is going to get legislated because there's this long track record of success. Right. And um, in other states, they don't have that same presumption. There's a lot of infighting and a lot of uh, difficulty in being able to keep everyone corralled uh, in terms of the, the coalition put together behind uh, a particular public lands bill. And, um, you know, does that change in a post-read world? Uh, certainly that's a, a question that has yet to be answered. Well, and the way these are put together traditionally is that uh, you're grabbing coalition, as Luke said, but you're, you're having to get environmental NGOs, the county commissioners, various business community, and other stakeholders all together to essentially say – we're giving something up in exchange for certainty, and uh, it doesn't generally work in other states. Um, the track record's not been very good. Luke is actually uh, was the staffer who worked on one of the very few successful ones outside of Nevada. Um, but it doesn't work in large part because nobody really has faith that they're negotiating with somebody that the language is going to become law. And that they all have to stick to their word in large part because Congress has a hard time doing things under what we would refer to out here as regular order. And that is a reference to the bill would need to be debated. It would have to receive 60 votes uh, in the United States Senate. It would have to go through the regular House process. That is hard and painful and one that you don't see a lot of land bills uh, very much go through. And so um, – but that lack of good faith is a really hard issue, um, especially when national organizations tend to get involved as they do. Um, it's one thing to negotiate with your local Sierra Club. It's, other, it's another when the national decides to get involved. And so uh, I don't know if you have more to add. No, I was going to say that I think that that point about Secretary Zenke is quite important because he was specifically picked for the job of secretary on the issue of, of transfer of lands to the states and being something that um, was really opposed by a lot of environmental of the environmental community. And so to walk that back even even a little bit, um, I know that the House Natural Resource Committee has worked on a few bills to do some small transfers in, D, in D.C. and things like that. And even those I don't think they've taken a position on. So when it's something that small um, that makes perfect sense moving a local park from the National Park Service to the D.C. Park Service, something much larger is just going to have a, a lot of blowback from people who are going to say, this was the biggest thing you promised. Why are you doing this now? And, and Alyssa, you referenced this earlier, but it's probably worth getting more specific. Las Vegas is the only major metropolitan area in the country surrounded by BLM land. So everything that happens to Vegas is unique, and therefore there's not an analog uh, when we were talking with Alyssa and Matt um, about this mineral rights issue, which I know we'll get into, one of the folks we met with said, I don't understand this. This doesn't happen in 
Um, in, why, are being, why are we being why are held we to being, a different standard? Why are we being singled out? That, right. Yeah. And, and, and the answer is because we're unique. No analog. There's, there's no other place of where that, that growth is accommodated by land disposal in, in terms of uh, the, uh, the Vegas area. So. so Clark County recently passed a resolution for a new Clark County lands bill. Can you, can you walk us through what's a realistic assessment of a timeline in this new environment? I, you know, it's, it, it's hard to say other than certainly one of the advantages Nevada has and, and certainly uh, is going to be tested as things move ahead here is they still have the benefit of a long record of being successful with some of these bills. That's a great, uh, you know, legacy upon which to build. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's only as good as the last bill that you've successfully uh, been able to, to, to pass. And so um, certainly it is uh, the presumption is it probably is something that um, to, to what John referenced before is probably more akin to regular order, uh, probably is something that's going to, um, you know, people's expectations of um, inevitability or that it's going to pass quickly or otherwise uh, are probably going to be challenged. I'll tell you one area to watch uh, again, too, is um, the uh, Southern Nevada Public Land Management Act or SNPLMA funding model um, certainly will be tested. Um, that's one that when it was passed, uh, the amount of revenues that were generated were at least, and this is a number that's a little bit old, but at least 14 times as much as what was originally anticipated in the original score uh, of that. And so significantly more excess, successful than anticipated. And so consequently, when that is revisited, when someone attempts to, to legislate that again, where there's an anticipation of significant revenues being generated, um, that model will come under a lot of scrutiny. And whether it's, I would say that that will be the case, whether it's that takes place under a Republican administration or even in a, a future Democratic administration, you'll still have that scrutiny and, and less of the ability of, you know, a, a Senator Reid and leadership that just says, well, this is the way that it is. And um, the ability to, to dictate that outcome that way. So. Because the Simplema funds, for those of you that don't speak public land, which is like me, um, are unique. Is that correct, Luke, that, that this is a unique land bill and the way that it's funded? That funding model is, is yes, it is different than um, the way in which if you were to dispose of lands in uh, a neighboring state, they would not, those funds would not be distributed in the manner in which they are in Nevada. Which is back into Nevada. It's a reinvestment fund into Nevada. Is that correct? Essentially, the, the, the revenues from that in large measure – um, maybe dedicated federal dollars, but in many ways they're dedicated towards activities that uh, are still Nevada focused. Maybe transportation, maybe other things like that. But they get, but spent, in the they get spent in the state with the you know that that uh, some of those are are deemed to be federal dollars, and certainly some go to treasury, some local BLM, some education. Again, but but the point being that. Um, um, at a minimum, you would say that that would have a greater degree of scrutiny. People are going to revisit whether that is the model and to some extent may require, um, you know, new trade-offs and new thought relative to um, whether that's going to just be adopted or whether that's going to have to be somewhat renegotiated. And part of what Bill talked about earlier, a real unknown right now is – Secretary Zinke, whether he's going to be willing to go along with anything that allows for uh, land disposal, and if and if he is, um, 
or if, I'm sorry, if he isn't, what does that mean? Right. Is con- is Congress going to roll him? Because that's essentially what they would have to do is take a uh, position of uh, disfavorable view and try to figure out are we still going to be able to get a lot of people to vote for it when they get asked the question, well, what does Interior think? And, and part of Nevada's case certainly should be, well, we are different. We are different. Um, you know, I certainly – I think part of the case that, that they can make is, you know, show me another area that is dependent in the same way upon this growth. And, right. and we have a, you know, precedent here. We've, we've had a very successful Nevada lands model. These are part of the arguments that should be made in that context. Um, you know, public lands in Nevada are not the, precisely the same as they might be in Montana. Um, you know, we may be talking about parcels of public land that open up access to lands that are used for hunting and fishing in Montana. That contrasts with what we're talking about here of, of you know, a, a one additional acre that looks just like every other additional acre in rural Utah or on the edge of, of BLM lands. And so that certainly is part of the argument. That's part of the case to be made. But the the point is that it's it is uh, certainly will be um, – uncertain as to how that's going to be resolved uh, moving forward. I'm going to switch in the interest of time to the issue that actually brought us here today that we've spoken to your government affairs committee about at the chamber. Um, And it has to do with a mineral trespass issue. So uh, one of the a key indicator of the unpredictability that Nevada will face going forward with the BLM is this issue that has emerged affecting our developers, um, where they a number of them, including some of the largest in Southern Nevada, have received surprise notices from the BLM that they are in mineral trespass, often with stiff penalties attached that were unanticipated at the time of the purchase of the land. It's caught a lot of people uh, um, by surprise, and there was a presumption that with the change in administration that perhaps the, the movement on this issue would go away, but that has not happened. Can you give us some color? What do you attribute this issue and what can we expect on it going forward? Certainly one of the issues, you know, from my time at BLM and in, in our collective experience in watching these issues for a long period of time is that BLM has a long history of getting um, uh, popped on issues in relation to uh, minerals of the presumption that, uh, they are not being as aggressive as they are supposed to have been uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, collecting uh, mineral revenues on behalf of the taxpayer. Um, there certainly is a long list of GAO reports and Department of Interior IG reports of criticism of the agency. And so These when – Government watchdog. G- certainly. Government uh, – yeah, government watchdog organizations um, within the government, that, that's their intent um, is – to ensure that those um, those criticisms or those questions relative to the degree to which they are managing the taxpayer's assets are, are being cared for. And so when someone raises an issue and says, hey, you may not be collecting revenues that otherwise would be owed to the taxpayer, um, BLM has a hard time walking away from that and saying, you know, that's a nonsensical argument or, you know, we uh, it's really not a priority to us. As soon as someone raises that issue, it's it's hard to ignore and to pretend it's not an issue. And so within that context, that's part of it. Now, the other side of this, of course, is you know, uh, the, the um, certainly frustrating experience. I know it is for a lot of folks who 
um, you know, acquired lands, um, certainly with no presumption or nobody telling them or no indication, um, no guidance of, uh, of any kind, that one should expect that um, the kinds of normal activities and that, that come about by virtue of development uh, somehow were triggering mineral trespass of some kind. But part of the context that I add is one of those reasons of why, you know, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, there's no magic wand that just gets waved that says, well, you know, we're going to be a little bit more, you know, in our opinion, a little bit more pro-business than the last, so we're going to pretend this issue doesn't exist because it would be bad for uh, developers. That's just simply not going to be the case. And, and to give everyone the context that um, weren't part of the Government Affairs um, Committee, when you acquire land, when you lease land from the, the federal government the Bureau through the Bureau of Land Management, you acquire the ability to develop the surface of the land, but the subterranean rights to the minerals remain that of the, the citizens of the United States of America. And it goes back to a time when, when they want to develop public land, and there might be very valuable minerals. So when a common person thinks about it, and I'll give you my perspective, you're thinking gold, silver. But minerals also mean gravel or dirt or large rocks. So what has happened in southern Nevada, which again, we spoke about this earlier, is unique in the nation in the situation that a lot of our land, most of our land, all the developable land that we want to develop on the edges of the valley um, are formerly public lands. Uh, What has happened is the BLM has started to issue, without any warning, mineral rights trespasses to developers that are moving dirt uh, Green Our Planet, a local nonprofit that develops the community gardens at schools, they were issued a mineral rights trespass because they built a community garden, because they moved dirt. And the, the proof of the trespass is the fact that you are developing the land. And, and they're random and they're ad hoc. And, and basically anyone, commercial or residential, that are developing land right now are subject to it. We're uniquely situated. And so that's the background through which um, you know we're asking Luke how and why this happened. Bill, I think your perspective would be really unique on this. Bill's role as the chief congressional officer is the congressional oversight of Interior. So oftentimes it's Congress saying to the BLM, why are you giving away what is the citizen's value, right, the mineral rights trespass? So any solution that is provided at the BLM level, which will not be at the field level, we want to speak to that, it's at at the top of the chain, um, has to pass congressional muster. Can you give a little color about from that perspective? Yeah, and I think that, that the idea that it's the Government Accountability Office and the Inspector General for the Department of Interior looking at this, they have BLM doesn't really have a choice at this point. Once they get those reports in, they have to deal with the situation. Otherwise, they're giving away money that is owned by the government. So when you have a situation where you're just moving dirt from one place to the other, landscaping the same piece of property, it's not even between properties. Right, same owner. Same owner, every yeah, that you're having to deal with. It comes down to an error in the initial the legislation was put together. They had a few carve-outs in it for swimming pools, for um, – for people's houses, but it was not set up for this sort of large-scale development when it was when it was drafted. And so you have to either come to a situation where you'd have a legislative solution, which is probably a harder sell, or find a way to get BLM national to have some sort of regulatory change where they can determine where the minimal, mineral rights start because having it directly on the surface, every piece of development is going to require some sort of movement. Right. Or, or, or potentially, you know, some more sophisticated thought about challenging the interpretation, but in a more formal uh, way and giving them an opportunity to, to perhaps, um, you know, reinterpret or, or reassess the, the 
you know, how they're going to proceed on that issue. But it is, to your point, it's, it's not something that just say, hey, this doesn't sound reasonable. Can you back off this? Can you kind of um, let up on this issue is, is really not a viable approach. Yeah, and it's not like BLM has extra capacity for people to be enforcing this. They don't want to be doing it. They have, they're completely swamped already. I'm going to switch to just one more topic. One of the other issues affected by um, the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Land Management is uh, large-scale development of large projects such as solar projects, which is something that we talk about a lot in Nevada. But what's often not talked about is the interaction that solar companies have to have with the BLM in order to um, begin uh, building those projects. Uh, what advice would you have for those considering BLM-related projects in Nevada um, about those approvals in terms of managing the project? And can you also um, kind of talk towards uh, a, a move out there to push the BLM to narrow timelines in relation to environmental reviews under NEPA? Yeah. You know, if we start with uh, we had a secretari- secretarial order that uh, was put out uh, probably about uh, six months, nine months ago, somewhere in that range, that essentially stated to BLM, that under the um, uh, Center for Environmental Quality located um, at the uh, White House, that their guidance says that uh, environmental impact statements, which is uh, what is necessary to uh, accompany a, an approval, that those documents should um, take uh, up to one year, except under extraordinary circumstances, can be 150 pages or less. And what hopefully we're going to see, and we haven't seen these documents come to fulfillment because we haven't hit the time frame yet, but we're going to see whether that uh, they're able to uphold those time frames. And the, for projects like solar development, obviously uh, there's a lot of capital involved. Um, and so if you can narrow those time frames from three-year EIS, which was not atypical at all, if you can get that down to uh, one year, all of a sudden, that's a lot of time that potentially can be saved. How we get there is we talk about this all the time in our world. Most projects that the BLM is presented um, by anyone, uh, most issues are meritorious. There's not a lot of people who want to go waste their time and talk to the local district office in Vegas or go up to Reno and talk to the state office. So how do you actually get their attention? And part of that is you've got to figure out a way to make it critical for um, the people who work in those offices and make them understand what the benefits are and why the necessity of their attention. Because you know, the term we use is bandwidth. And most decision makers, um, including those at BLM and their bosses overall at the Department of the Interior, would love to be able to say yes to everything, but there's a limited amount of capacity they have to work on these projects. And that's that's ultimately, if you're going to be successful, you've got to get their attention. I would say the one thing that you should add to that is a year would be a significant short, shortening Absolutely. of the EIS process. Um, the average across government, I think, has gotten over eight years for EISs. Now, BLM's probably going to be a bit shorter than that because Department of Transportation are significantly longer, Forest Service has been longer in the past. But people familiar with mining projects are well aware that we deal with double-digit years. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, getting it to a year and that shortened time frame and and the volume, you'd have things that are 25,000-page documents put out. And being able to reduce that to a more manageable size is really what the NEPA process was 
built for, to have a shorter document that would take everything into account and put it out there, but not something that would require a specialization to actually be able to read. And, and part of that, of course, is the desire uh, or recognition that a long, drawn-out, uncertain um, uh, process deters capital away from uh, investment in federal lands. And um, the, to the extent that um, it's not an attractive place to do business, people will go and, and uh, construct their project elsewhere or they'll invest those dollars elsewhere. And so I, I think that's the intent is to try to narrow that time frame um, considerably. And, and, you know, John's right. We have not yet seen how this is going to materialize. There was additional guidance put out um, by BLM recently about how they're going to execute on, on some of this. But at a minimum, um, I think there's the desire for downward pressure to, to narrow those time frames to be a little bit more predictable and reliable. But one of the things that it, it really requires is it requires a sophisticated effort uh, to, to put a product together that the agency can, uh, can review. Uh, putting BLM in the position of largely reviewing those documents um, as opposed to uh, being the author of in, in, in many cases and finding a way of, uh, again, minimizing those points of friction. Um, it takes sophistication and it also takes prioritization. And so communicating with the Washington <coughs> office, um, having the expectation that your decision makers um, have – uh, an expectation they're going to be asked about the status of individual projects or other things or how things are proceeding. Those are all elements that make up um, the, a successful project and one that is far more likely to be able to fit within that time frame that is anticipated and expected. And you have to bring realistic, workable solutions to the table when there are problems. The worst thing I believe anyone can do who's dealing with public lands uh, – is to tell BLM they have a problem without a solution. Right. Just come and complain and they're without a sophisticated way of that they they're can too solve overloaded the to solve your problem. Which is which is the challenge of the mineral rights issue. Absolutely. Right. They have a problem and the solutions that they've offered so far to Nevada aren't very good solutions. I'm going to open up this now to question and answer. Any questions you have regarding large scale development, small development, residential development? Let me repeat the question. The question is, what would it take for the federal government to outright sell the federal, some federal land around Las Vegas to dedicate those funds to the construction of I-11? So I, I, I think that there's a couple questions that, that uh, ought to be considered as part of that, one of which is, is certainly that's something that can be on the table um, relative to a, you know, legislating a solution such as that. I think in theory you may have some problems that you run into in terms of how to navigate that properly relative to, you know, if it's specifically for a specific um, project within Nevada, there are earmark questions and other things that are different than what they would have been back at the time that SNPLMA was originally uh, authorized. But the concept of being able to use some of those revenues for those kinds of purposes that would otherwise receive federal funds, that certainly is something that probably could be on the table and it could be those kinds of, uh, you know, future trade-offs of where you're largely using similar, uh, a similar model, but perhaps it's, you know, it's a little bit different than, you know, what might have been done in the past. Also, so. actually, I mean, it's a pretty good idea. It certainly requires an act of Congress. Uh, the uh, executive branch does not have the authority on its own. But you also get the Arizona delegation probably pretty interested too and all of a sudden 
people who don't care about Vegas all of a sudden do uh, in Phoenix and elsewhere. So there is there's some creativity there, but it it will require having to go through that regular order process we talked about before. But it's certainly um, I don't think any of us up here would tell you it's a terrible idea or one you should uh, shouldn't try to explore further and see whether you can get any uh, attention from your delegation. I would say the one thing that may be an issue, and that's more of a political question, of really where the excitement is in the Democratic Party, and Alyssa would know this better than I would, (laughs) but you really have this balance between labor and environmentalists, and you've had labor taking this big hit with the Janus decision in the Supreme Court that's going to cut off a lot of funding, um, a lot of excitement in the environmental movement right now. So those are kind of the wings you're fighting with in trying to get something like this passed. Yes. Yeah, so. so the question is, for our, our historical purposes, um, what is the difference between BLM lands and public lands? That was a question raised in Carson City this last legislative session. So I, I think part of the issue that you run into is the degree to which what is a um, legal definition of versus what is the common use of. You know, um, as you well know, the BLM lands are essentially those lands that were left after other lands were withdrawn from the public domain for various different other purposes from Forest Service, Park Service, et cetera. Um, all of those lands that were left in that sense are public lands, but at the same time, people often will refer to BLM lands as public lands. But they also, you'll find often that people will refer to public lands, generally speaking, across any federal agency that's dealing with it. And so when we talk about public lands, for the most part, I think there's an expectation you're talking about BLM, certainly probably in Nevada, with a large amount of BLM ownership. There's the uh, supposition you're talking about uh, BLM lands. And I'm I'm not familiar with the specific Carson City dialogue about that, but sometimes that term is used far more broadly than how we use it when we're just talking about BLM. They may also lump in your military installations. Uh, is yeah, or, or some people may refer to federal, Forest Service, yeah, right. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Park, Park Service land. Right. You know, again, according to that general definition, those could be included, technically but they're not be called BLM public. lands, right. and they're lands that are, are not still in the public domain. Dylan, did you have a question? The question is, is that the ratio of land swaps in both the Washoe County bill and the Clark County resolution is a 10 to 1 ratio, which seems large and unsustainable from some, from certain perspectives in Nevada. The question for the panel is, is, is that the kind of ratio they should be looking for, or are there other alternative solutions that are more sustainable? And, and I guess what I would say is, I think that's part of what I was referring to earlier as is somewhat untested of, you know, you have the secretary as something of a new actor relative to this debate in terms of is that kind of a ratio? Is that something of where um, when Secretary Zinke, who made very strong statements in his confirmation hearing about how he felt about large-scale land disposal and his discomfort with that, um, is that is that in violation of that? Is that something that is going to uh, result in a you know strong opposition? Um, at the same time, you know, in the past, largely it was um, what is the threshold by which all of the relevant stakeholders can get on board and our delegation can support. And if it rises to the level of something our delegation says, 
we think we all can support and we think we can sell that back in Congress and and with the caveat of where we began, which is Senator Reid largely being the arbiter of that question um, and very few people being able to challenge that, other congressional actors and, and others willing to challenge him on that. That's where I say that's that is a very relevant question. It's largely untested and we're, we'll probably find out um, you know, here coming up. But that's part of the uncertainty underscoring some of, of where we began. But that's – and to that, we talked about how it, these groups all have to essentially be on board and accept that this is going to become law. In case you're talking about, let's just pretend the National Mining Association decided we don't like this. We don't want this to be held in other states. We're going to get involved and we're going to oppose. All of a sudden or, – or if uh, – an environmental group who had been part of talks decides to break down and say, we're, we're out. You, you really run into these troubles of, can you keep a coalition together? Can you keep 60 votes in the Senate if organizations say, we're not doing this anymore, or more so if Interior says, we don't like it? And so it is. It is really untested, right. and we don't know where this is going. It's, but it's a heck of a lot harder than – Lincoln County and previous Clark County and Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act. It's a very different dynamic. It's a different dynamic, different world. And, and the success that they had in those legislative efforts are probably going to be harder to recreate than some might think. I saw one more hand or two. I'll let you be the last one, Luke. Okay. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Luke, then Andy. <laughs> the question is the origin of the, the mineral rights issue, and uh, I, I think Luke's going to go over this. Just a quick timeline. There was a GAO report uh, that was requested, I believe, by Congress um, to say, can you assess whether or not the BLM is actually monetizing appropriately for the citizens of the United States, the mineral rights that are existent in southern Nevada? That was actually done under the Obama administration. That report came back unfavorable. And as and his response, and this is what Bill was alluding to earlier, they they can't they can't choose not to act because basically the GAO has said that you aren't doing your job. They issued a one page or two page memo um, not that long ago that says, uh, this is right, we have not been exercising our quote unquote mineral rights or haven't been monetizing them appropriately, and we're gonna make this a top priority to it. All of a sudden, ad hoc, random uh, trespass violations, and it's at the front of their mind. And actually, um, what was interesting, when we met with a number of developers in Southern Nevada, the violations, actually, if you were to triangulate them on the map, were around the BLM field office in Southern Nevada, because the way they found out people were violating it, and this is a true story, is they would see a truck of dirt go, and they would follow the truck of dirt. And so the first target has been residential home builders because we all know we're back to building homes again in Southern Nevada, but it's now expanded to, you know, green our planet and anyone that moves dirt. It also creates liability for subcontractors that are moving dirt. Um, and there's some exposure, obviously, you know, for any utility line, any, any time you displace gravel or dirt in Southern Nevada, you could, you have a potential to be subject to a trespass violation if that land had ever been – if that land was leased by, to the, by the BLM. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think you are um, – it's, it's where when the land has been sold and they've retained the mineral interest. Oh, right. but, it, but it is still um, – it, it cries out for kind of a global solution. 
Uh, no field manager in the Vegas field office is going to resolve this on their own with a new interpretation or a novel approach or otherwise. Uh, someone's going to have to, you know, really work together as a, uh, you know, as a, a, a team to figure out what is the right approach and, and ideally to, to kind of take that and, and, and resolve that uh, more globally. And a political appointee, probably multiple, are going to have to sign off and declare this a new policy that they are comfortable with, and here's how we're going to handle this. And so it, it will require, at the minimum, Washington blessing something. Yeah. Yeah, the BLM is going to have to say this policy is okay, but then, to you know, in Bill's old role, Congress is going to have to say, that's right, BLM, you are now actually doing your job, and we're okay with that. So it's a it's a much more complicated solution than I think uh, those believed. And it's also not going away because Democrat or Republican, the agency doesn't want to be accused of not doing its job on behalf of the citizens of the United States. And Congress alone is not going to step in to solve this. And so one has to interact with the BLM and, yeah. the, and the lawyers over there. Luke, I'm going to let you have the last question. The question is, is um, what can you highlight how land bills in general promote economic development? I finally got it right in letting you. I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. You know, I I think Nevada has been, again, Nevada has been very successful at, and the other Western states refer to it as the Nevada model, of being able to couple uh, wilderness, national conservation area, um, conservation designations with we're, we're taking care of some matters here on uh, as part of this legislation, we're also doing some other things here that are going to accommodate economic development, uh, everything from rights of way and, and uh, uh, disposal to, you know, various different other provisions that, that might work within that particular county. Um, and there's been a, a great effort to import that model beyond Nevada. Um, I think that that frustration from other Western states of not being able to reproduce that um, probably mattered less when Senator Reid, again, was able to kind of – those bills could be passed largely upon his, uh, upon his shoulders. Uh, but, you know, uh, certainly it continues to be talked of, and, and it is a great model, and there is momentum from that. But uh, there, there really is a great solution, and I think that that's um, – it's, it's a great model if you can keep it a great model that other Western states certainly are envious of as well. Again, we want to thank you for allowing us to have this conversation with you. Uh, we're looking forward to future conversations, and we want to thank uh, Hugh Anderson and the Government Affairs Committee at the Chamber for um, supporting the efforts to reform the mineral rights issue. Um, the, your voice as the leaders of the business community in Southern Nevada truly matters to us. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.